We're all familiar with famous movies that show the machines taking over Earth by force. With over two decades of experience, my military specialist today discusses if that really is how our world ends. Welcome to the Just Dumb Enough podcast, a show that acknowledges no one is always an expert by dispelling misconceptions with real experts. I'm your host as always, Colton Petrie. My guest today is J.L. Hancock. Jim, as he allowed me to call him, spent 20 years as a cryptologist working his way up to senior advisor over future concepts and innovation for military special operations. That's a whole lot of technical terms I didn't understand and wouldn't expect you to either. However, Jim does an incredible job presenting profoundly complex things in a relatively simple way. By the end of this episode, I know we'll all be just dumb enough to understand why the rise of the machines isn't our biggest concern. Let's all hope I don't get arrested for publishing government secrets. Welcome to the show, Jail Hancock. Oh, it's great to be here. Thank you. It's wonderful to have you here, Jim. Why don't you introduce yourself a little bit for the audience? My name is Jail Hancock. I am an author and consultant. Uh, I spent 20 years in the military, spent the the bulk of that time working with the intelligence communities as well as special operations. Uh, The last seven years or so, I worked as the head of the Future Concepts and Innovation Directorate at Naval Special Warfare Command, which is the headquarters of the SEAL teams where I developed a lot of uh, artificial intelligence and autonomous robotic systems. And that sounds incredibly complex and very over my head and something I didn't know existed. Yeah, it's one of those things. (laughs) Where you're like, oh yeah, we work in future concepts. Yeah, Uh, mainly the, the idea behind that being that you are looking at emerging technologies as well as trends and identifying ways in which those could be applicable in the near term as well as the long term and then building out strategies as well as plans for how to um, change and bridge the cultural and geographical divide between uh, the end user and those new technologies it's really what we focused on wow so what got you into all that like what started that journey i joined the military originally as a cryptologist and because I was very heavily and focused and integrated with emerging technology and new technologies itself uh, when we started focusing, when they started shifting a lot of efforts towards innovation in that space, I was selected to help run this new unit. And that's ultimately how I ended up really digging into it and becoming very obsessed with a lot of the topics in that space. But it started with the the baseline job of what I did in the military, which was cryptology. Very interesting. So when we look at like the future concepts line, what are the most common things that pop up? It depends upon who you're asking about that and what their problem sets are. Uh, at the time when I was looking at it, I mean, AI was a huge one. Uh, quantum computing and quantum sensing, quantum communication were another one towards the end that started becoming big. I mean, Bitcoin started with blockchain was another one that we started really talking about a lot, trying to figure out how that would be applicable. And then we quickly discovered it wouldn't be relevant for our space in the way that we thought it would be useful. But really, autonomous robotics like the ability for robots to be able to make decisions on their own on the edge, as well as AI writ large became the predominant conversation. I mean, 5G 
was another one that was a big part of the, of the discussion. And as cryptologists, we had a, we had a very strong understanding of telecommunications. And so that was something that we did dabble in. And I did a number of very large projects with that particular uh, protocol of communications. But they all kind of intersected in one capacity or another. One was either the ways in which those things would communicate, the ways in which data would reside and be stored, and the way they would take advantage of those of that data, all kind of tied into each other is what it what we started seeing the most of. And that's where uh, really we're starting to see like AI boom uh, yeah. back starting in around 2017 or 18. And is AI kind of like, that's the top of the umbrella. And then you would consider like autonomous robotics below that. Yeah. I, well, autonomous robotic, I mean, I, I, it's a Venn diagram, right? So they, they have an intersecting element to them because one is a hardware component and the other is a software component. And depending upon what you're trying to do, uh, and so AI being a catch-all term for anything associated with machine learning or the ability for a, a, a machine to be able to think in a way that is comparable to a human thinks, that's that's just what AI is. The AI is the catch-all term for all these different techniques that can fall under that, like GPT, for example, the transformer. A transformer is a form of machine learning that is a subcomponent of artificial intelligence. And autonomous robotics, you could consider AI, but they're also a subcomponent of just hardware and robotic platforms, right? So they intersect. And which one of these kind of became like a, a military focus first, like the the software or the hardware? For it will both. For, uh, yes. Pretty in tandem. Yes. Yeah. So they, yeah. So for data processing and understanding how data would be employed, that's where AI became focused on that side. But then uh, with the robotics aspect, we were very heavily involved with uh, when I first started messing with it, we were that was when what was called um, ready to fly or RTF drones became very uh, prolific on the market. And those are drones that you can literally buy, you pull out, you pair them with the controller, or they didn't even need to be paired with a controller. You could pull them out and immediately put them in the air the second you bought them. And those RTF systems meant you could do a lot of new things. And so we were playing with those a great deal because we figured that if we were playing with them, most likely so were our adversaries. And so what were the, so we were doing, we're just seeing this a lot now, everybody attaching grenades to them and putting everything. We were doing that, I don't know, seven or eight years ago, because that was the very first thing you do with those things is figure out how to do it. And then once you realize how to do it, it's pretty easy. You're like, okay, what's next? And the thing that we quickly realized is, you know, if you're in the battlefield, you don't want to be, you don't want to put your gun down so that you can pick up a controller for a drone. You, you want the drone to be able to operate on its own separate from you. And so we started focusing on how can we automate those processes? And then that led to autonomy. Gotcha. And how, like, where are we in that process right now? Like how autonomous can things be? With robotics themselves? Yeah. Like as we apply it to, you know, modern day warfare. Hmm. So uh, the way that I usually describe this is there are, a robot needs to be able to do three things. It needs to be able to see, it needs to be able to think, and it needs to be able to act. A more complex way of describing that is you have the perception layer, which is the ability for the robot to see its environment. Now, that now I mean by that is like the cameras, but not just cameras. You also have LiDAR and sonar, and you have other sensors you could integrate onto the robot for it to perceive its environment. And then next to that, you have the it needs to be able to perceive, it needs to be able to localize. So it needs to be able to, it needs to be able to think and understand where it is in its space. So if I have a drone flying inside of a house, 
it needs to one be able to see where the walls are and two it needs to be able to recognize them as walls and then understand where it is relative to that wall that's localization and then it needs to be able to say okay where am i going to go from here now that i know where the wall is because i have uncleared or undetected spaces all around me how do i find those and so that's where it's you path plan and it determines which path it's going to go and then you execute and so so path so per, a perceive localized path plan execute and then so those that's a loop at see think act loop that goes on with robotic systems but think about it like this if you have a dog for example when you're building a dog and the very first thing you build you would think is well it's a dog and the thing is is this, this dog is really focused around its number one most important sensor and on a dog it's its nose right a dog develops as a puppy, the very first thing it develops is its sense of smell. It doesn't develop its sight like humans do or hear all hearing and sight. It's like it's relative, right? It's no, it's sense, of, sense of smell is the most important thing. Well, when we build robots, we tend to not focus on the sensor. When we integrate and build the brain, we tend to build like the autopilot first and then we add the sensor later. And what we were discovering is that the sensor focused approach to building robotics allows you to build different layers inside of that system for it to undersee, think and act like I mentioned. And that is what really was the change that we started seeing as time went on, as people started recognizing that they needed to focus on the sensor integration first, rather than as a secondary thought and as like a payload that you just slap on there. Like imagine building a dog and then you just add the nose at the very end is like an afterthought. You know, that's kind of how drones are built is you build the drone and then you put a camera on it. Whereas you build the camera first and then you put it and integrate it into the autopilot and you make it so the drone can see. And that's where things really started changing is because the ability for a drone to understand each one of these different layers is referred to, uh, usually referred to as an abstraction layer. And each abstraction layer ha has contingencies. And so the more abstraction layers you add, the more complex of uh, capability you can develop out of the drone. But also it's harder, so you need more compute capacity. So you need a better computer on board. And so you have all these things that can make it very complicated. And that's what's kind of limited some of these capabilities that you've seen in the real world. So a lot of them are still kind of at the dumb I can do GPS navigation. I know how high I am, and but you have a camera connected to a radio and so you can see where I'm flying. But beyond that, the drone can't really make its own decisions. And then at the same time, there are some drones where there are very few of them. You could literally press a button and say, go search that building and it'll go find an open door and then it'll go in the building and it'll make all the decisions for itself as it flies around that building and checks every room. That's the spectrum. However, uh, there's a lot less of those other drones than there are of the, of the ones that are very dumb that can just do like basic waypoint navigation and, and give you the impression that they are doing something really fancy when in reality they're not. Yeah. And I guess that makes sense because like you said, there's a lot of things that need to be to recognize, to be, you know, everything. If you just said like, go into this building and check it, it has to walk into the building, see that first room go inside and then is there people or not people well like at first it's, it's is there is there obstacle or not obstacle right so let's go through those attraction layers so step one can it recognize a door how does it recognize a door does it see it as nothing there or does it see it as an empty space is it open way so there's different ways you can go about it you can go about the of line saying like i just see a gap and so it's like until i don't see a gap i'm just going to keep flying in that direction and that's the dumbest way that you can go about it and so that's kind of what you see in the really initial systems is that rule. And then really advanced ones is not only they're coming up and seeing that there's a space there, their computer vision layer, the abstraction layer that does computer vision, detects the shape and size and look of the door and, and classifies it as a door and then classifies it as something it can enter. 
right? So those are two different ways of looking at it. One is just an empty space. The other is actually identifying the object for what it is and interacting with it because of that detection and that classification. All of those are things that have to be programmed out, trained, and then repeated for every single system. Yeah, and that's a lot of a lot of data, I imagine, just to like sort through that much yeah. stuff. Yeah, a lot of computation as well. I mean, as as depending upon how complex of an environment you're operating in. So obviously we're not not quite there yet. I assume yeah. behind the scenes, like there's a lot of work going on on these things. Yeah, there's some that so in isolation, there is a lot of really good stuff being done. But if you were to aggregate it and say, can one thing do all of these things? And the answer is no. Yeah, which makes sense. And I know, you know, anytime you talk about AI, and I think this is thanks to the entire Terminator series, but I think, you know, people are like, okay, so when does it take over the world? Right. When does, when does that, so that connection between generative, general artificial intelligence and autonomous robotic systems, we'd love to think that those two things are intertwined. And absolutely not. So because most of those robots are too dumb, they can't see, think, and act, and they're not connected. And you assume that just because it has a radio connection, it's connected to the internet. It's just It's not. <laughs> most of them don't even have a way of connecting to the internet unless you physically plug them in, right? They don't, the radio interface, isn't. it doesn't work. Some of them nowadays are finally getting 5G connections. So if you have a SIM card, it could. But if you don't physically power it on, you can't turn it on remotely. It doesn't have, it's not built into the hardware. So there's so many things that are missing there. You're, however, there are these multi-layer um, and multi-agent autonomous artificial intelligence systems that exist that have nothing to do with robotics. And those are some pretty impressive systems. Um, I can get into that, but uh, those are completely different conversation than the robot part. It's just we tend to associate anthropomorphize the whole Terminator robots rather than recognizing that large language model-based artificial intelligence is significantly more advanced because it, the, the technology is just, it, it's it's much easier to develop than it is for robotics. Yeah, I think certainly as we've come into, you know, decades since the, the Terminator movies started, we're like, oh yeah, all robots are connected to the internet at all times. Yeah. And you're like, that's not how robots work. <laughs> no. Well, mostly it's just, you have to have the right radio. And even if you had the radio, what would you be? Is it always on? Because guess what? It's battery life doesn't run for very long. Yeah. You know, and and does it like, once again, see, think, act. Most robots can't see, think, and act. Most of them, when you turn them on, they're very dumb. They rely completely on GPS. And if there's no GPS, like you're in a house, they tend to just fall apart. They don't know what they're doing. Once again, because they can't see, think, and act, and then they just crash. So, So it seems like the more nefarious of the two would end up being the software version of AI. Absolutely. Totally. Yeah. So where does that, does that come from it just being like one day AI wakes up, has some, some sense of self and then says like, oh, I'm better than you guys. I'm just going to yeah. do my own thing. That's a pretty big jump. That's like jumping from something turns into a bacteria. And then that bacteria suddenly realizes that it wants to rule the planet. Right. That's a really fast evolution. Yeah. Now, is it is it possible that the, an evolution comparable to that could happen? That's it, it maybe. There's there's a book called A Thousand Brains that I like, where this neurologist or neuroscientist basically talks about the development of the human brain relative to AI, and he basically says, you know, in the human in the human brain, you have two different brains. You have the new brain and the old brain, sometimes referred to as the lizard brain. And your lizard brain, which developed from lobsters and all these other things, it still kind of exists inside of your head, you know, 
that's where all of your emotional center is. That's what your fight or flight, your survival instincts, all of the things that basically make us core emotional beings, the way that we are, comes from our old brain. Uh, these artificial intelligence tools that you're seeing develop now are not based on that. They're based on our new brain. They're based upon neurons and the the cortical stack inside of the front part of your brain and how it processes and understands and creates models of the world. And then we how they replicate and adapt and predict inside of that space. There is no emotional association with it at all. None. The only qualification that's added to it is whatever is built into the predictive model that's been fed to it from all of the words you've shoved in there. And that's what the neurons are recalling is the data you've shoved in. And what's dangerous about it at this point in time is they've put so much into creating the model. They don't know what part of the model they're recalling when they output their results. And so people default, I had a conversation with a buddy of mine about this the other day. And he's like, well, since they don't know what it's doing, how do you know it's not alive? And I was like, that's a very Schrodinger's cat kind of problem. You know, how do you, is the cat alive or dead? Cause you can't see it. Well, it doesn't even mean that, how do you even know it's a cat at all until you observe it? And I was like, this is very quantum mechanical, quasi philosophical conversation. It has nothing to do with what's actually happening in there. And the reality is these neurons are recalling based upon a prediction of the words that are put in there. What's impressive about them is their ability to predict what comes next in the conversation and the ability to anticipate what they're supposed to do next. We as humans dramatically anthropomorphize that capability. And we we give qualifying elements to it because of the way that it interacts with us, because we begin to think it's thinking, it's predicting. And you can say, well, what point in time do those predictions become self-awareness? Well, that we don't know. But if it does become self-aware, how what is the next step in action associated with what it's predicting, right? And now that, that that you can, this is a big philosophical aspect of that conversation. As from what I've seen and from what the from what I've seen being developed, that there's this there's funny different layers to it. Like there's the aspect of that uh, the CEO of OpenAI always has a laptop on him because at any point in time, if if his AI becomes self aware, he wants to be able to shut it off. Like that's a there's a rumor that that's true, right? There's this saying in Silicon Valley that everybody has this this P plus whatever, how many days in which they think that the world's going to end because AI becomes self-aware. It's it's always tongue in cheek about people being like, yeah, I think this is what's going to happen because this is where the AI is going and we keep feeding it. Well, it in certain levels, you're like, it, it is a problem. And then at other levels, it's not. The part where I get concerned about it is the impact it has and the ability it has to create dis and misinformation that can be disseminated on the internet and can be presented to people that people think is real. And it's it's the fact that our realities are being twisted and that we as a society are defaulting to pseudosciences rather than traditionally critical thinking and sciences to deduce why something is taking place and what that means. And that is the part that I think is the most concerning is we, we do not know how to disassociate or differentiate fact from fiction anymore. And now we have a tool that is going to dramatically exacerbate that problem. And uh, long before general AI becomes self-aware, we would find a way to use that tool to completely disassemble our own society. That's the part that I am the most concerned with. It has nothing to do with AI. It has to do with AI operating as a mirror reflecting back to us as a society. Yeah, you're like, it's a it's a problem in the chair and not so much in the in the server. Yeah, totally. It yeah. is totally the person in the chair.
Yeah. Well, and I get that because you're like, oh, I don't know how a thing works, you know, and now we feed it into Google and like that could lead you down the wrong paths, depending on what you type into the the search bar. Same yeah. thing if you're like, well, I'm going to ask the AI because the AI knows everything. So I'm just going to ask it. And then what it feeds you like creates a, a shockwave yeah. of stuff. And that's what that's what the uh, that Netflix show, the um, the social dilemma was all about. Right. Where basically you're like, hey, I have this the algorithm in YouTube or on Instagram or whatever is feeding me things that I say that it thinks I'm going to like. And most of those are the things that, cre- that elicit an emotional response. And so it effectively feeds to your vices. So now it creates a profile and a persona that feeds to your vices. And you just keep devouring it because it creates a chemical reaction in your brain. And so then, but if everything is doing that and tailoring to your location and the people it thinks that you like and the information you thinks you like, it is driving you down a path where you can no longer think critically because the reality is skewed by the limited amount of information you're receiving because it's always coming with a bias. You're being fed some other narrative all the time. And it's not because the algorithm has the motivation to do that. It's because the algorithm is designed to keep you using it. It doesn't care what you're looking at, just as long as you keep staring at it. And and that's there's the irony is people like it. They, there's, a, there's a plot to make me think this way. And it's like, no, that's just your vice is being used against you when you should just turn it off. Reset yeah. your history. Like I try to I try, I try to reset my history every month or every week at least on anything that I'm using. And then um, if I keep getting stuff back, I realize it's because of the people that I follow or the people that follow me. And then I have to find ways to figure out who the more radical ones are and purge them. (laughs) Because I'm like, if I'm trying to remain objective within a certain thing to get better information, you constantly have to actively be a part of what the algorithm is feeding you. Which is hard because the things that you may like may not be the things that create the most emotional chemical reaction out of you. And then it once again, it's feeding to your vices. And that's the interesting thing about it is it can create predictions based upon what it thinks your vices are. And most of the time it's right. Yeah, like it's gotten very good at at determining what uh, what keeps you on the platform and not yeah. necessarily what is the most beneficial for you to see. Yeah, and that's that's part of the big lawsuit that's going on against Facebook right now that just the government just pushed is that that is it's in there. They're comparing it to the lawsuit that took place against big tobacco because they're basically saying that the social media is just as detrimental for youth as to as cigarettes were and uh, it's interesting to see what their what the government's case is against that because it's it's a pretty big lawsuit yeah and i could certainly i can see that (laughs) i mean i'm i am not a, a very big active social media person and part of that is i'm like i don't like what's going on in here when i use it and part of that might just be that i like I don't understand how to parse my algorithm down to be yeah. usable for me. Yeah, I've I've had to like Twitter, I've had to actively get in there and manipulate it so it wouldn't feed me stuff that just made me depressed. Like it's I actually don't I hardly ever use Twitter for that particular reason. I think it's like more or less a push medium, but because I don't have much interaction on it, I don't have a whole I don't have any followers because it's like because I don't care. I don't that's a medium I don't care about at all. Uh not that I have a lot of followers on any other platforms either, but it's like, <laughs> um, because I don't, I don't want to interact in that space. It's a necessary, it's, it's a necessary evil, but, uh, at the same time, it's, it's one of those things that ultimately I find that I'm not in the best headspace when I've spent a lot of time interacting in there. Yeah. So it seems like, you know, and I think a lot of that is like the way we, we use movies and the way we've written comics and the way we've done everything else is we're like, oh, AI will 
grow sentient and then destroy us on the internet from the inside. But instead, what we're hearing like from you is the biggest risk is that we will blow ourselves up by not knowing how to use our own tools. Yeah. Now, long before that other thing happens, we will find a way to use it to our own detriment because it, it, it is very powerful. And I, I am significantly more concerned about the way that we uh, pick and choose narratives that we choose, that we want to buy into and follow that, that really is alarming to me because it, we, we, we all complain about being polarized as a society, but then we only drink out of, we see the world through, there's two ways that I like to look at it. One is, uh, there is the whole aspect of the difference between perception and perspective and then perception being your perception is gained as an individual is relative to the experiences that you've had. And those have created prejudice and bias and both positive and negative throughout your entire life. You have a positive and a negative bias for all those things, right? However, perspective is being like being able to step back and understand the situation from the, from a whole and be like, okay, I, I can see another person's way of looking at that. And when I was in grad school, they defined one of the things we we're studying was how to create a national security strategy. And the two philosophies were realism versus idealism. And a realist strategy recognizes all the problems that you have to deal with now and focuses the whole strategy around dealing with those problems so that you can create a better future. The other one is an idealistic one where it focuses on where you want to be and then building the strategy around where you're trying to get to entirely. Uh, the drawback of both being if you don't have a healthy balance between what you're seeing as the ideal state versus the real state, you might miss risks that are taking place now, but you also might miss opportunities later on. Now that's another, once again, that's a perception versus perspective problem. And within that, we I think we've really lost perspective in many of these narratives because we're fixated on our perception. It's a soda straw versus um, really stepping back and seeing everything for what it really is. Certainly. And that, you know, it kind of leads us through, hopefully, by now, if people have been paying attention, they know, like, we are our own biggest risk. Is there something that people are like, at least from your perspective, that you hear, like, people are very afraid of that we just shouldn't be other than obviously, like, sentient AI, things that are just like everyday technology that people are like, this is it, this is what's going to do us in. You know, we talked about 5G earlier as, you know, a form of communication. I know I have heard a lot of people use 5G followed by conspiracy theory. Right. Well, that's an unfortunate, like, it's it's funny because that one always, that one always cracked me up is because you'll see people latch on to something that came back to like saying when, when people fill in the gap, when they, when the, when they read an article that says something like, there was a study done based on this and they're concerned about the use of 5G in this space. And then other people start coming in with other conjecture associated with that. And I had this conversation with some other people recently. 5G is literally 4G on a different frequency. That's it. So it, it's just, it's happening at a higher frequency. People are like, well, if you're emitting on the higher frequency, what's it going to do to you? And it's like, well, it only travels a short, it's going to travel a much shorter distance because if it's the same amount of power, it can't go farther because that's how radio waves work. They, the, the, the higher the frequency, the more energy you need for it to travel a greater distance, right? If I have something at 2.4 gigs and something at 28 gigs, I'm not going to be able to turn one and have it um, transfer, transmit the same distance to the same power. It's just it's, it won't work. So 5G was designed around optimizing 
the close-up space and being able to use higher bandwidth is really all it was. And so, I mean, people are freaking out 5G. They're going to really freak out about 6G because 6G is focusing on even higher frequencies and completely really wacky stuff. I mean, they're doing stuff that I've been very familiar with for a long time, like the concept of a digital twin, like the idea of creating synthetic environments for mapping things out and understanding what's going on in the world and then updating those synthetic environments. What I mean by that is imagine if the entire cellular network had uh it was also mapped out in unreal engine like a video game and then you were mapping and testing out the radio frequency transmission inside of that video game based upon what's happening in the real world and so you have a version of of downtown san diego in your on your computer that's also happening at the same time and so those are that's what a digital twin is and ieee as part of the third generation partnership project is actually asking for white papers on how to implement digital twins as it pertains to 6G. And you can be like, that sounds very, very technical. But what it really means is we're looking at technology in completely different ways because we can do that now. But if I were to mention all this stuff to the average person, they're like, oh, no way. It totally means that we're in the matrix and AI is going to own us. And you're like, dude, you've lost your ability to have any critical thinking at this point in time. That's not what this means. It just means that you've got do you play video games? Like, yeah. Are you afraid the video game is going to suck you in? Other than the fact that it's wasting a lot of your time, you know, you're not afraid of it physically taking control of you. So don't worry about it. It's fine. <laughs> um, yeah. I can understand if the radio emissions you're concerned about exposure to radiation being too high, but the wattage is the same. It's all about wattage. So anyway, so that's me getting very technical. But the reality is, um, we worry about well, the thing that we should worry the most about now, in my opinion, is less about those like 5G or whatever. The concern that I, in my opinion, really is the way that we ingest information and that we are too busy allowing other people to feed us their narrative and then seeking out places to gather information that reinforces that narrative. Because, and I've said this many a time with other, other podcasts as well, is that we don't ingest information anymore for the intent of gathering truth. We ingest factoids to reinforce our worldview. And I say factoid, not because it's truth, it's information shared to us as if it were truth. And then we absorb it into our worldview. Same thing with conspiracy theories associated with 5G. It fits into the worldview that the government is basically running all these conspiracies. So therefore, when somebody brings up a new technology and you go, oh, that's another one that I could just feed right into my worldview, but you're never gonna go back and fact check them and look for truth from that factoid because that might create cognitive dissonance and might create an uncomfortable reality for you. So you don't want to uh, uh, face it. And that's anytime somebody is not allowed, not doesn't allow themselves to really listen to another perspective on a problem. This is where we have issues and you run into. And I, I just think AI has the potential to reinforce way too much of that. That's what I think is the most dangerous thing. Yeah, it's almost the old, like, if you say something with enough confidence, people just believe you. And there's a lot of people who've become very confident. But yeah. the, the thing that will be infinitely confident is the thing that you can't tell, you know, its tone or its context or anything else. It's just a machine that gives you straight up what you consider to be 100% data. That and that and the platforms that we have now allowing everyone to scream. So everyone is screaming into the void. And so you have the opportunity to listen to all these people just say things as if they're facts. And there's no, which is surprising that a place like Reddit, for example, has actually become a better source of good information because you have actually like people that are in there determining what is good, what is and what isn't good inside of that particular room. And then um, 
you also have there's less of the whole this is this is tying into my identity and i get i get this i get the the likes and all that stuff that drives people you get a bit of it but it's not nearly as bad as you'll see on other platforms because everyone else is just it's screaming narcissism but at the same time at the same time there's it's a bit ironic that we're on a podcast and we're complaining about people getting wanting attention but it just i mean this is just the intent is but the thing is i think that overall what we're discussing is has nothing to do with wanting the bad attention i think that sharing information that ultimately leads to people thinking and and being able to think critically for themselves is obviously the direction you want to go and if ai can help with that that's great the problem is like i said it is a mirror reflecting back to us what we're feeding it and the bulk of what we're feeding it right now is kind of ugly. Yeah, and that is very much, you know, like, as we talk about all this, it is in the context of learning more, mm -hmm. you know? So, like, using Reddit. Reddit is a great source of information. I know I've heard people say, like, oh, well, don't get stuck in an echo chamber. And you're like, that's why there's communities on Reddit. Yeah. <laughs> like, you don't spend all of your time on one subreddit. You go to multiples of them because yeah. that's how the system is built to work. You don't just like hang out in one area. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. But all of that taken into uh, into account, how long do you think we have to kind of turn this ship, right? Because society is very like full steam forward kind of a, you know, a design. And right now we're all using it badly. Mm -hmm. So how long do we have to like reach critical mass here? you know, before we you can't know, turn. You know, I think it's actually, there are levels of it, which is changing. Uh, I think that when a lot of what we'll see is being driven by the younger generation and a lot of them were fed as a mixture of things. I feel bad for, generate, for Gen Z because they were basically raised on a lot of that. And so they're dealing with a lot of the mental health issues because of it. I would like to think that because of that, there would be some levels of, realization of the limits of that there's going to be government related regulation i mean the government just the president biden just put out this effort associated with artificial intelligence that they're trying to push for when it comes to identifying and understanding what ai does before they're allowed to put it on the market which i think is a great direction i don't think ai should just be able to be thrown out to the masses i think what open ai did initially created a lot of buzz and it got a lot of conversation going but i think it was i think in practice it's a horrible idea because you're putting something that you don't truly understand and putting it out to the world. I think that's just, it's just a terrible idea. Yeah. So the, the optimistic side of it is I think that we will finally, once we understand more of the technology, we'll recognize its limitations. We'll learn more from it. Um, I think that um, other countries have recognized that and we need to learn to dissociate what is our liberties and our freedoms and what is actually better for us as a society. We don't need to be as limiting as countries like China, but they have a good thing. And they have a good point when they say, when they limit like TikTok access for their children to like an hour a day, and there's some good information there. Like my kid, my daughter, one of my daughters, when she was really small, um, every once in a while, we would let her watch these little videos on YouTube kids. And uh, when we took it away from her, she'd have, a, she'd, she'd freak out. And we were like, okay, we're not watching that period ever again, because I don't like this. And we literally didn't let her watch YouTube again for years 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 and years like to this like we're not going to allow our kids to have phones until they're 16 they have little watches that they can use to communicate with us but there's a, there's no other reason for them to have a cell phone there just isn't I, like people can sit there and just be like oh you need all these different things you don't need any of it you really don't 
And I really am a, a strong adherent to the idea that um, if that you do have, if they do have a phone, it's not their phone. It's the phone they're allowed to use. And so if it's no longer associated as property, they recognize at any point in time, it can be taken away from them and they have nothing to say about it because it's not theirs. Right. And so that aspect of ownership all of a sudden takes away from this ability to be addicted to it. Not to say that it can't happen anyway, but you allow them when they're mature enough to understand what's happening to them to gain access to it. And so that fervor that comes with the tying in with, especially with social media and being able to like jumping those algorithms, they're so susceptible to the addictive elements to it that you need to, you need to govern that thing. I see in the future us being better about that. I see parts of society that will never get there. Same parts of society that will eat ice cream all day long. You know, they just don't understand how to have any type of moderation. And so I think that as time goes by, it'll also become uh, comparable to the tobacco industry, anti-tobacco um, advertising and marketing. There will be more and more marketing targeted at limiting people's access, limiting time on social media and people and becoming more of a cultural thing that we all realize that we need to shut that off because we're not happy with it. Um, the hard part will be the fact that an entire generation is addicted, you know? So I, I literally, as you were talking and explaining that, I was like, this is exactly smoking, but we've just like overlapped that to now where you're going to, you know, in a few years, be looking at people who are like, oh my God, are you using social media in a restaurant? <laughs> yeah, no, it, that's only, that's, it has to go that way. It has to go to the point to where we are culturally making it unacceptable. Um, and, and, but that's, it really is. And as much as that sounds like propaganda, you actually, you have to use marketing and propaganda to, to educate your society as to what's better for them. And sometimes that's good. That is good propaganda. Getting people to stop smoking was good propaganda. Yeah. I don't know anybody who come back and be like, um, well, I really wish the government had been a proponent of getting us to stop smoking, you know? Yeah. So th those tools are beneficial because it allows you access to communities. Like you said, with Reddit, that's good. It's not good if it consumes your life consumes your time because it's just all you really have in life is time and if it's occupied with nonsense then you've just given that up for no reason yeah it's just like you said you're just listening to the screams into the void what's yeah. it doing for you yeah Very enjoy much. other people's screams <laughs> absolutely so you then you know you got out of all this you know working in this tech sector everything else and you wrote a book that mm -hmm. is very like has a very heavy AI focus in it. Yeah, it does. It, it does have a heavy AI focus, but not in the way that isn't people would expect. Right. So I, 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 I'm a very much against, not against, but I get annoyed if I read a book and it has anything to do with AI. And all of a sudden the AI is going to be this sentient disembodied voice. Cause that's all that anybody thinks AI is right. Once again, AI is a catch all term for a lot of different things. And so my big focus on my book was I wanted to have two things. I wanted to focus on different ways in which artificial intelligence is employed. And I wanted to explore, I wanted to create a vehicle by which you could understand a character dealing with things like post-traumatic stress. So uh, the character in my story is kind of like, imagine Q from James Bond, except for instead of being somebody that just hides underground and builds things, he actually still goes out on combat operations with the special operations people. So he's he's an operator but he is, he's very much a nerd, likes to work with technology, but he's not, he's kind of an outcast because he's not officially special forces or whatever you want to call him, right? But he's somebody they need to do their missions. So he's always there, which is just like in real life. A lot of people don't know that is whenever a lot of those times those 
types of groups of guys go out, there's somebody else with them that is not one of them that is helping them do their job. And so uh, this individual has these dreams, these recurring dreams, and he doesn't tell anybody about them. He's just kind of sucking up the issues associated with post-traumatic stress. And then he starts hearing this voice at night kind of telling him, warning him of impending doom. And he doesn't know where it's coming from. He starts thinking that he's legitimately losing his mind. And then he learns uh, about some Americans that were working on this program, uh, something called the God Algorithm in Japan, and those scientists go missing. And then he's been asked to go find them with this other task force. And then he soon discovers that his dreams and what's happening in the real world are actually aligning. And that's very interesting. Like all of that as a concept is is very fascinating because you know we do have so much of that you know, people going to war, becoming part of very tight knit communities, developing, you know, post-traumatic stress. And then what do you do from there? Like, what is the moving forward point? And what is, you know, going back to the start of our conversation, what's helpful for you versus like, what is maybe unintentionally destructive? Yeah. And they, my character, he hides it really well. Uh, a lot of my friends that suffer from post-traumatic stress, the way that they would distract themselves was very interesting. Some was a little stereotypical. Some would drink heavily. But the ones that hit it really well, the ones that obsessed over work and they never stopped working and all day long was just fixating on that. And so everybody was like, dude, this guy's amazing. He just never stops. And it's like, hang on, why doesn't he stop? Like what? Like if if he wasn't working, he was running. If he wasn't running, he was lifting weights. If he wasn't lifting weights, he was doing another project on the side. And if he wasn't doing that, he was passed out because he couldn't stay awake anymore. And then he would do it again the next day. And so that's you would say I'd see that in people. And so I built that into my character. He hides it well. He doesn't drink. He just crushes his job every day. And everybody thinks he's fine, but he's a ticking time bomb. And he's just waiting to completely just break down. And he doesn't know it. He won't admit it because he keeps thinking if he just keeps it, puts his head down and works, everything will be okay. But the one place he doesn't want to go, like his dreams and his memories, is the only place where he can find the actual answers to this problem that they have in the story. So it's less about the type of courage you would expect, the courage to be, I'm going to go run into a fight. It was the courage to, can I accept my own demons? And that's really what the character's evolution is about in the story. And that's fascinating. I mean, you're talking about someone both metaphorically and literally running from their problems. Yeah. You yeah. know, where you're like, oh, are you running again? Like, yes, I'm running again. Why? Yeah. Because. Just because. Yeah. Don't worry what, about it. <laughs> it's funny. I had friends that literally would do that. They would go on really long runs every single day. And I was like, it's not like they're running for their health. They're running away from something. Yeah. And they were obsessed over it. It's really interesting. And so I, I built that into my character that he... Has, he's constantly just doing these things to run away from his problems. Yeah. And I, I have known some friends like that where it's like, Hey, how come you always have music playing in the background? And when you finally get down deep into the problem, they're like, I'm afraid to be alone with my own thoughts. So having background noise just like keeps me moving. Like, yeah. Oh, that's yeah. probably something we should address. <laughs> that's probably something you should talk to somebody about. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, my main character is it's because of the fact that he has a bit of an inferiority complex. He feels that he doesn't he because he wasn't one of these other really high end kind of like um we refer to as operators, but he's one wasn't one of these operators. So he's like, I they, they get all the treatment, they get all the stuff because you know they've they've been there and they've done it. But he doesn't accept the fact that he was literally beside them every single time they did all that stuff. He's just as susceptible to whatever happened, but because he's not doesn't have the title. He's like, I don't, I'm not somebody who can complain. 
you're like, and from somebody outside looking in, you're like, oh, why would they think that? You don't understand. Like, there's an entire culture within certain communities of 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 these things, and even those individuals have an inferiority complex at times. It's ironic considering what they've accomplished. And so I, I really wanted to explore that in the character. At the same time, I get it's very technology heavy in the sense to where I will explain I explain things like optogenetics and and I get into machine learning and computer vision and I get into, but in a way that is palatable, I think for most any audience. It's a little military heavy, but at the same time, it's that's what keeps it going and makes it exciting. So, absolutely, that's awesome. Where can people get it? Where they find it? Uh, anywhere books are sold. So Amazon is probably the easiest one. Uh, you can, and it's also on Audible and all, and pretty much anywhere else you could find an audiobook. Fantastic. Well, if people pick it up, as I always say, please leave reviews. Reviews drive literally everything in the algorithm that is, you know, book sales. So, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Please. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Otherwise, Jim, thank you so much for being on the show. I mean, this has been number one, very informative, but also just like a really good time. Yeah. Likewise. I'm glad to be here. Appreciate it. Yeah. Well, thank you again. Like I said, I immensely appreciate your time. All right. Thank you. I realize now we never said the title of his book. It's The Hawk Enigma. Go pick it up if you found any of this at all interesting. I would hope everyone is going to leave this episode feeling much more skeptical about the interactions and news they see pop up online. But the truth is that at least a couple of listeners were probably scrolling through Facebook or Twitter during the episode. It's a scary thought to realize we are our own worst enemies when it comes to information. But you really can't take a hands-off approach to the world existing all around you. And speaking of that wide world, it's November, so here are the new rankings. Number one, the United States, led by California, Ohio, and Texas. Number two, Australia, with New South Wales already taking a lead. Number three, the United Kingdom, with England out front. Number four, Canada, with British Columbia barely at the top. And number five, Ireland, just barely edging out South Korea. That's it for this week. Have a great week, have a great weekend, and I'll see you all back here for the next episode. Until that next episode, please do all those things that helps the show grow, like rating, reviewing, liking, and subscribing. Reach out to dumbenoughpodcast at gmail.com or on any of the social media pages if you want to reach me personally. But most importantly, stay dumb.